settled. Just a reminder, we're having uh, the Lord's Table on Sunday morning because it is Christmas Day. Also, we've had very good response from people on the new live streaming um, service that we have uh, picked up. And it's very uh, gratifying to see so many people respond. It's also a little bit distressing to hear so many people say, well, I haven't had an uninterrupted Bible class in, I don't know, 10 months, 12 months, 18 months. So um, now we hope we have all of that fixed. Now, one thing that has that I've heard is that some people have reported that when they turn on their smart TV or the, even their computer, it, the, the image is about a third of the screen, that it's small. If you hover your mouse, and even with a smart TV, you have a way to move your mouse around. If you hover your mouse over the upper right-hand corner of the image, certain icons will appear. They disappear otherwise, so they don't distract you. If you go up into that upper right-hand area, there's an icon, and it's an expansion icon, and if you click on it, then it will expand to full screen. So uh, we're uh, assembling a few uh, help questions that we're going to put on the uh, DBM website on the live streaming page so that people can can access that. Uh, The only other events uh, I wanted to remind people of is obviously I'm here. I'm not in Israel. A lot of people have said recently, well, when are you leaving for Israel? I'm not. We canceled the trip back in September because of a Too many people said they didn't want to go to Bethlehem on Christmas Day. Who knew? So we just didn't get enough people to sign up. The next trip will be in June of 2018. So we will get information out to that sometime next fall or summer where people can start signing up. But uh, I will be here because we had planned that trip. I had postponed the trip to Kiev to mid-February because I didn't want to be gone two weeks to Israel and then get back and turn around a couple of days later and head to Kiev. So I'll be leaving for Kiev on February the 15th. Uh, Dr. Ice will be covering the pulpit that first Sunday I'm gone. He's also going to teach two Bible classes, and we're working on uh, him teaching part of a course that we can record for Chafer Seminary during the day, so anybody who wants to can come down and listen. Uh, we're going to have him video an ecclesiology and eschatology course for us, so if you want to be an audience for that, you can do that. And uh, and then the other thing is Bill Katz. Some of you remember uh, Bill Katz. He's a missionary with Chosen People Missionaries. He was here a few weeks ago. I mean, Chosen People Ministries. He's a um, uh, <coughs> Jewish missionary from Argentina. He did the Seder meal at the Chafer Conference last year. He is moving here. Uh, He's been living here at, uh, somebody made their house available for him, and he and his wife were here for a while, and he left right about a week after Thanksgiving. But their goods, their worldly goods are arriving on the 27th of December to move into an apartment that they have rented over in the Westheimer Beltway 8 area. And when I last talked to him, he does need, was looking for some folks who could come and help them out. So we're going to look for volunteers who can take off a couple of hours, two or three hours to help out. I don't have any more information than that. Let me check my cell phone. Nope, he has not texted me back. I asked him earlier today for uh, some specific information on when and where and how long and have not heard back from him, but I I will. And when I do, we will send out an email to the congregation so anyone who would like to come and help uh, will be able to do so and help welcome them to Houston. How shall a young... uh, I'm not going to start with that set of verses tonight. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean, on, <clears throat> lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing. 
But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that we can be here tonight. We can be here to study your word and to reflect upon what it teaches and come to a better understanding of what it does teach, especially in this area that is so difficult in our contemporary culture to deal with the issue of submission, especially in the area of of marriage, but also in many, many other areas. Father, as we think about the Trinity, we see a perfect illustration of this in terms of the submission of our Lord Jesus Christ to your authority and the submission of the Holy Spirit to the authority of the Son and the Father. And we are to manifest that as believers in our own relationships. Father, we pray that as we study tonight and think through these issues that you'll help us to have a better understanding of how this dynamic is to work within the marriage and within the family. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, last time I started this looking at the doctrine of the dance uh, in 1 Peter 3, 1 and 2, thinking through the implications and applications uh, of commands related to submission. In all of the 35 years I have been in pastoral ministry, if there has been one particular issue that has been difficult For many people to understand, it is this particular issue. I had more problems. Um, Actually, I had a church that my first church actually blew up, almost literally, in terms of being divided over this this issue of the role of men and the role of women in the local church. It is a problem that runs root deep in our culture. I think part of that is uh, an aspect of rebellion against Christianity. I think another part of it is reaction to abuse that has taken place uh, in many different kinds of situations over the years. And I also think part of it is the drumbeat that comes from the radical feminist left uh, that has uh, taken over uh, whole departments and universities and teaching uh, numerous classes on feminism that are required courses for all all women to take and where they get brainwashed and if they don't respond to the brainwashing then they will be they will be flunked uh, i had one young lady in uh, ch- my church in connecticut who started at University of Connecticut, went to a women's study course the first week that she was in. Within the first 15 minutes, the uh, professors, they're, they're very adept at this. They identified who the Christians were and started picking on them and going after them and and ridiculing them, uh, intimidating them, uh, telling them that, that you keep listening to those uh, patriarchal pastors that you have and they're going to destroy your life and all of these other things like that. And they get this over and over again. And in fact, uh, what she did was drop the class uh, before uh, she would uh, get hit with anything. But that's the kind of thing that goes on. And if you don't have any doctrine in your soul, if you don't understand the Word of God, and not just understanding what it says, but why it says it, what are the reasons that God has established these structures uh, in marriage, in family, in society? What is the reason for that? Then you don't have any intellectual defense for, for these assaults. And you get them in more subtle ways in sitcoms, in romantic comedies, in films. In fact, you can go back and trace this in, in movies back to the post-World War II, World War II era where you see the 
uh, minimalization of the male and disrespect for the male. And even in the era of Father's Knows Best, there were a lot of other sitcoms that were Mother Knows Best. And so you have this kind of mentality, this anti-masculine, anti-male, anti-male leadership type of um, thinking dominating back as even in that era that many people think was so great in the in the in the 50s and this gradually erodes the respect and authority given to the man and God designed men a certain way and he designed women a certain way and uh, that doesn't mean everybody functions that way because we've all been corrupted by the sin nature but if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ then God has provided a tool through spiritual growth and spiritual maturity to put to death the deeds of the flesh and those trends and tendencies that we all have toward uh, abuse, towards tyranny, towards bullying, situations like that, and to correct them with a biblical view of authority and submission. And we see that, as I pointed out last time, in the Trinity. There's perfect authority between the members of the Trinity. It is a family, as it were, with a, the Father, the Son. You have the Holy Spirit. The F Son is responsive and submitted to the Father. The Father and the Son both sent the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit responds to that authority. There's no competition that enters into the perfect uh, society, the perfect makeup of a triune God. So last time we got into this, for looking at 1 Peter 3, 1, which echoes a number of other passages. Wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, that's always the rub. We always want to put conditions in there, but what if he is? And the Bible really doesn't give you that kind of leeway. If some do not obey the word, they, without a word, may be won by the conduct of their wives. In the previous section, we saw uh, the command that slaves be submissive to your masters, that even if they're harsh. So the behavior of the person in authority is not a condition for obedience or disobedience, although there are conditions, negative conditions, where disobedience is legitimate, and we've covered those. So I introduced this with a doctrine I developed years ago called the Doctrine of the Dance, and it's a beautiful illustration of how two people work together. One is in authority and is the initiator, and one is the responder and the follower, but they work together as a team to produce together something that is uh, of great beauty, something that has a, a value and is aesthetically pleasing, but it doesn't happen overnight. You see this in any kind of a team sport. Uh, you look at a number of, you can think through any number of your favorite football uh, heroes over the years, your favorite quarterback, your favorite running back or tight end, and as you came to first watch them perhaps in, in college ball and later in professional ball, they didn't get there overnight. They started off when they were little boys and they were, uh, they were throwing passes and they were catching passes and they were running and they were developing their skills and their abilities and they, they were responding to the instruction of their coaches. And every one of them had particular talents and worked in particular, uh, particular roles within a team, but they don't, don't try to take over somebody else's uh, role or position in that, that team. And so the same is true of marriage. It takes practice, just as those young boys become, become very adept, skillful young men in their athletics. So uh, young ladies, young girls need to be trained and taught about uh, submission, parameters, limits, and what that looks like. And part of this, uh, you know, I've often thought in doing premarital counseling that I would assign... Uh, if I could do it right, a year of taking dance lessons. Go take country western dance lessons. Go take ballroom lessons together. It's amazing how many couples start having problems communicating. And all it does is reflect the fact 
that they probably don't communicate very well with each other, and it's it's very important uh, to do that. Uh, when you look at a couple that dances well together, they also communicate well together, and they talk about what's going on before or after. They communicate. They talk. It's not just getting out on the floor and the guy pushes her around the floor. Trust me, that never ever works. So, uh, I opened with this warning from uh, Lamentations 5.15. Our dance is turned into mourning. That's what happens when society fragments and doesn't understand how these relationships are to work. So, I covered about four points last week. I'll review them rather briefly. First of all, dancing involves teamwork with clearly defined rules and roles for each member of the team. And when one person breaks out of that, then you have problems. And when I was taking dance lessons, I could always tell the women that were probably an authority at their job. I spotted one woman right off the bat by the way that she uh, responded to leads. And I thought, you know, she must run her own company. Turns out she did. And she wanted to back lead. She wanted. To, she didn't want to respond. And, and eventually, we got all those things ironed out and... Uh, uh, I spent a lot of time dancing with her in, in various things, and she came to understand that and did a, did a great job. But initially, it was quite, quite difficult. Second thing I pointed out is that two people can't dance together without a common goal. And they are working together to be able to achieve something that, it, that looks good, something that's enjoyable, uh, something that they both have fun at. And the same is true for two sinners who come together in a relationship. They're going to have conflicts and difficulties because you've got two self-absorbed, corrupt individuals who are coming together to live together, and they each have different uh, different desires, different wants, different personalities. Hopefully through the courtship stage they figured out that when and where they can work together and who they can't live with and they get rid of them. I've always said it's not important to have fun things in common. Most people enjoy doing the same, a lot of the same kinds of things. Um, what's important is to make sure that your sin natures are, are compatible. Now you just have to think about that a little bit. But if you're married to somebody whose sin nature runs in one direction and your sin nature runs in another direction, then when you get out of fellowship and your sin nature is in control, they're not going to understand you very well. And the same is true in the other direction. But if you have compatible sin natures, then you're going to understand the dynamics are, that are going on in, in, uh, on the other side of the relationship. So if one person just uh, uh, is a little bit impatient and short-tempered, if the other person is too, then many times the, they'll both understand each other when they're giving in to their impatience and short-temperedness. Uh, but if one person, uh, and, and if they're both somewhat, uh, shall we say, vocal or loud in uh, in just you know getting rid of their anger and their frustrations, then the other person understands that. But if one person thinks that if you raise your voice, just the volume, just a little bit over a pianissimo, that somehow that's abuse, then it's it's never going to work together. So you have to have those levels of compatibility. And if you're focused together in a Christian marriage on glorifying the Lord Jesus Christ, that it's not about me getting what I want and she getting what she wants, it's not about my career or her career, the goal is marriage together, blending together to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ in the ministry that God has given to every single couple. And that ministry primarily is related to the male as the leader. As Adam was given the directions in the Garden of Eden, God brought him a helper to assist him in achieving the mission that God gave him. 
And so they have to learn to walk together. And that doesn't mean that you're going to look like any other couple. This is a trap that a lot of pastors fall into. I used to rebel against it when I was in seminary. I would hear different areas of application coming from professors' mouths, and I would think, that that doesn't ring true. There are different kinds of people. I remember even as a camp counselor at, at Camp Penile, sometimes you would hear people quoting from the Psalms where David would say something like, early in the morning I rise and I, I enjoy you. And some people are going, I'm not a morning person. I can't enjoy anybody, even God, at at." eight o'clock in the morning. I gotta have coffee and lunch before I can start enjoying people. So people are different. And so you have to have these work through these things together. And if your goal is to serve God together, then you recognize what that goal is and you can work it out. Third, I pointed out that like any team, dancing has specifically defined roles for each of the two participants. The male is the leader and the woman is the follower. But that doesn't mean the man is the dictator and the woman is just run over on the dance floor. It means the man initiates, he plans, he directs the movements of the woman, but he does so often by communicating with her what he is doing, where they're going. Remember, she's you probably going backwards, and you have to uh, tell tell her and communicate what they're going to do and how they're going to do it. In the dance, and let me go back to that. In terms of the Christian application, the husband's the leader. He's the final authority, and he's the one God's going to hold accountable for the spiritual welfare uh, of the family. So that involves communication with your spouse, talking about what are the best ways to to uh, manage our money, our financial resources, what are the best ways to take care of the domestic responsibilities. Uh, if you've got a husband who's work, working and the wife is not working, then how you split up your domestic responsibilities is going to be different than if both are working 50 or 60 hours a week. Then you have to figure out other ways to to make things work so that... Uh, you know, I don't know how it works in some houses, but I've seen some some husbands who expect their wives to do all the domestic chores plus work 50 hours a week, and that that's not reasonable, uh, at, in my opinion. Uh, so you have to work these things out and talk these things through together. Fourth, in the dance, the leader and follower positions are not related to the skill level of the dancers. The male may not be very skilled at dancing and the uh, lady may be very skilled at dancing or it might be the other way around. Uh, th so the male leader, if he is less skilled, then that's going to call on a lot more grace on the part of the lady in responding to what he is doing and trying to figure out ways to appropriately guide him and instruct him without stomping on his ego too much. Uh, I saw a lot of that in uh, uh, as couples were working together on certain things. You'd have uh, some women, because uh, we weren't, there weren't any couples in the classes that I was taking, but uh, people would usually find somebody else they could dance well with. And I would also hear from some of the ladies that you know, so-and-so, you can't tell them anything. They won't listen. They know exactly what they are doing. Well, what they know is what they think they are doing and what they think they are communicating, but if the partner isn't hearing what's being communicated, then they need to work on that. So once again, it comes down to humility, and it comes down to graciousness and figuring out how to uh, uh, communicate to the other person in a way that they will listen and uh, and respond. That happens often in Christian marriage. Uh, you have different levels of spiritual maturity. You have different levels of emotional maturity. You have different IQs. You have different levels of education, different uh, leadership and management skills, and different talents. And so the roles... Uh, 
have to work for the man and the woman have to work within those those skills and not necessarily in terms of of preconceived ideas so once again it takes humility and responsiveness and in order to reach an optimal performance of the man in the leadership role and the the uh, wife responding to him the fifth point in dancing each person has specific footwork that must be learned and practiced in order to develop grace and fluidity. It demands thought. It demands concentration. It demands um, uh, focus and foresight. When emotion takes over, then mistakes occur. When you stop thinking and you're just going to flow with the music, then everything can start breaking down. And the same thing, kind of thing happens in marriage. In Christian marriage, each person has specific tasks and roles that they may learn and develop. You start off in your marriage, you're single, you don't have any kids in the house, and so you have one set of parameters and you work things out there. Then after a few years, you have the first child, second child, or maybe a third child. Things are going to change. It calls for different levels of, of uh, energy, different levels of involvement. And there has to be flexibility. Each person needs to have a little time off. And uh, uh, the other has to have uh, understand when and where that should occur. So it uh, it's a matter of communication once again and as we as two people grow together uh, towards maturity towards Christ-likeness then that enables them to uh, respond and to initiate in the area of, of grace along the way every one of us is going to make a thousand ten thousand mistakes and the difference between uh, 90% of the time, the differences between the marriages that don't work and the ones that do are because there's a failure to apply grace and humility in every situation. And when people start uh, taking uh, offenses and becoming offended at certain things, reacting, uh, harboring those hurts and bitterness, res building resentment, then that is a sure prescription for ultimate, ultimate failure. So both need to have this desire to work together, and they have to. It has to be grounded on humility and teachability, and not on arrogance. Six point in dancing, the male communicates to his partner a number of different ways. The same thing is true in marriage. In dancing, the male will communicate his leads through how he uh, uses his hand on her back, uh, how he moves his shoulders. She will have uh, her hand on, usually on one shoulder, and she can will get to know his body movements in anticipation uh, of, of certain moves. If the male leads are too strong, then she will become overpowered and look stiff and awkward and may even uh, fear that she may get hurt in the process of the way he turns her that uh, she doesn't have that flexibility and it may I've even seen some people fall down in the middle of a dance because of a, uh, too strong of a lead and as a result of that the whole process breaks down. On the other hand, if his leads are too weak, then she doesn't know what in the world she wants. He wants her to do. She, you can't respond to a good lead. So men have to think about two things: how they communicate their leadership and the direction to their wife, and how she responds to leadership. What kind of leadership she responds to, because no. Two women are going to respond the same way to to to, the, to different leadership or to the same leadership. Uh, they will. Each person is very different. So husbands need to study their wives, and they need to understand how to best uh, lead them uh, spiritually and emotionally and in every other way in in the house. So there needs to be that that communication. 
The man who leads too strong becomes a tyrant and a bully and is abusive, has no concept of grace, impersonal love, or humility. Uh, Usually he's weak, he's self-centered, he lacks confidence, he's often operating on on, uh, arrogance. And in any situation, if a man becomes emotionally or physically abusive, then that is showing that he is a complete failure in life and he is a failure in marriage. And if he doesn't figure out how to develop humility, then that marriage is uh, in trouble as every area in his life uh, will be in, be in trouble. Seventh point. The male as the leader in dancing plans and initiates the various moves. He must always be thinking five or six steps ahead. And that's an important principle of leadership in every area. One of the things that is important, and this is true for deacons, it's true for pastors as well, is to think one, two, three years out in terms of what's going on at a church, looking at finances and saying, well, what happens if all of a sudden there's an economic collapse? How are we going to handle that? Now, you may not know what you're going to do now in terms of what circumstances may occur in the future, but a good leader thinks in terms of both positive positive circumstances as well as negative circumstances. What would happen if... What would happen if the pastor suddenly became ill? What would we do? What would we do if the pastor suddenly had a heart attack? We all know of circumstances where there are pastors within our purview who have, I I even know of one who almost died in the pulpit, had a stroke. And in fact, he was dead before the day was out. Uh, how do you respond to these shifts in God's plan? What are the positives? What are the negatives? I worked at a uh, Christian ministry some time ago, and after working there for some, some years, I, I talked to the uh, chairman of the board, and I said, what's your plan when the pastor retires? He looked at me like I'd hit him in the face with a cold washcloth. It had never occurred to him. Now, when you've got a pastor that's somewhere north of 75, if you're not thinking about what you're going to do if suddenly he's not able to be in the pulpit, then you're a poor leader. Leaders think in terms of what ifs, good or bad. As parents, you need to think about your kids in terms of what the various what ifs as they're growing up. Uh, positive as well as negative and working through how um, how you're going to respond to that. So you see that in dancing, that the male as a leader is thinking ahead. He's watching if you go out, on, if you're on a dance floor somewhere where there are a lot of other people that are moving around, you have to see where the other people are moving and how you're going to move as you make your way uh, around through the people on the dance floor so that you're not bumping into other people or stepping on other people's toes or, or getting in other people's ways that they're trying to get past you. There are always obstacles. There are always uh, situations that might surprise you. And so you have to think those things through. And the same thing is true in terms of a husband thinking in truth that what happens if there's a major health problem? What happens if something um, unexpected happens to a house? I just learned this yesterday. I was talking to Jim Myers, the young man that uh, works for the ministry who's a driver for Jim. Great young man. His name is Sergey. And Sergey has uh, more on the ball than most people that I know. And he uh, purchased some uh, land at some point some years ago. And he built his own house. Uh, step by step, as he made money, he has a lot of initiative. He's uh, done different things to make money outside of the normal way of just just getting a job and getting a paycheck. And he built a very nice house. He's got horses, all of these various things. He has a nice car and that, that he owned. And then he came to Bible college. He's got a great grasp of doctrine. He's got a great understanding of, of, of the scripture and a great faith in the Lord. And less than two weeks ago, he woke up in the middle of the night, uh, lives alone, not married, 
Woke up in the middle of the night. The house was filled with smoke. He barely got out of the house, ran to the garage, got his car out of the garage. The house collapsed, burned to the ground. He lost all of his money. Banks aren't a safe place to put your money in Ukraine. Lost all of his money, all of his clothes, everything that he had. House completely destroyed. And now he is a, he's got a great attitude. He said, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And he's moving on, figuring out what to do. People in the church have come together, given him clothes. He's gotten some money to buy some new clothes. Fortunately, his parents live uh, very close by, and they had room, and he's moved back in with his parents for the time being. But you never know when that kind of a thing is going to happen. But as a responsible adult and as a leader in the home, we need to think about preparation for what may come. So that is part of what is involved in the leadership of the man. Now, that doesn't mean he doesn't discuss it with his spouse. That doesn't mean that he just has a secret plan, uh, but that this is something that the family understands. So he works through that. Uh, Eighth point. In the dance, the leader must learn and study his partner to know how to lead her effectively. I've t- touched on this all- already. Same thing is true in the home. And as, a, uh, as an expression of aggressive personal love for his wife, the husband has to constantly study her, learn her. You change as a man, as a husband. You will change over the years. You're not the same after 20 years of marriage. You've been well-trained. No. After 20 years of marriage that you were when you first got married. You've grown. You've matured. The same thing happens to your, to your wife. Different things happen in life, some good, some not so good. And as we grow together, we learn. And as a, as a husband, you need to learn how to... Uh, effectively lead your wife. That involves, again, communication skills and uh, observation skills. Ninth point, the man must learn to listen to his partner. I think there's three examples uh, in Abraham's life where he listens to Sarah. One did not turn out so well. And as a result of that, Sarah said, I can't have a baby go into Hagar, my handmaiden, and and you can have a baby with her, and that'll take care of the the inheritance problem. Well, that led to uh, problems we still face today in the Arab-Israeli conflict. Uh, It's gone on for, for centuries. But there are two other times in Abraham's life when he said he listened to his wife, Sarah, and it was positive. It was it was correct. So, as a man, you have to, of course, with every piece of advice you get from anyone, you have to weigh it and evaluate it. But you need to communicate with your spouse, uh, with your wife, so that you you understand and you both understand where you're going, why you're doing things, and what the uh, problems or strengths and weakness may, weaknesses may be in any course. Uh, in any course of action. Again, to communicate, you have to have uh, humility and teachability and grace orientation. Husbands need to listen to your wives because sometimes they're going to tell you things you don't want to hear, and you don't react in anger because they tell you that you don't listen very well, and uh, you're not very patient with me. And you hurt my feelings sometimes, and and uh, you don't like to hear that, but that means keep your mouth shut and and listen. Um, no one will know you as well as your wife, other than your mother. And they will come to and and they will say things to help you. Sometimes they'll say things that hurt you, and that's why you have to respond in in impersonal love and grace grace orientation. We all do that because of our nasty little sin natures. Tenth point, the woman must learn to communicate to the man without challenging his tender little male ego. And that, if, if the man or the husband thinks he's doing a good job and you tell him he's not, that may not go real well. It's how you do that, how you make suggestions, and you can only learn that Wives, as you study your husband and figure out ways to uh, communicate uh, with him uh, so that he is responsive. Uh, 
So uh, a lot of times that means working on one thing at a time, uh, not nagging, not reacting in anger or uh, resentment or ridicule. Uh, sometimes you hear this. It comes from men and women as they react to the other person and say things in uh, tones and in looks uh, that are not uh, appropriate for building a solid relationship. Uh, in marriage, uh, as long as you are both pursuing spiritual maturity and working together and the goal is to have a strong, healthy marriage, then that can overcome many other things. That's the mission, is to glorify the Lord through having a solid marriage. And when you're working together, then that, uh, that's achievable. If there's sin that enters into the relationship, then that too can be a problem, but it works on both sides. That's where grace is needed. Eleventh principle is that the woman has to learn uh, to let the man lead. And that's a difficult, that runs counter to a lot of things in, in this life. I think one of the most difficult things that has happened culturally to families in the last half of the 20th century is wives that go out into the marketplace to work and they're under the authority of another man and they get under the authority of maybe two or three other men and this can create conflicts at home. Historically, this is a very rare uh, type of situation. That doesn't mean that biblical principles can't overcome them but it creates a different set of parameters. So the, the wife, who may be very successful, may be in an upper executive position, and the, her husband may not be. And all of a sudden she has to come home, and she should be responsive to, uh, to a husband that is very different from the authorities that's over her at work and her responsibilities in the home may be much less domestically than what they what they are uh, in terms of a career that career for a woman put I'm not saying it's wrong but the Proverbs 31 woman you read through that she's got her own level of career uh, going on but it creates a different scenario that has to be worked through the twelfth point if the woman is unaware of where the man is going and unaware of his plans, she is constantly uh, she must constantly be ready to respond and shift according to his lead. Uh, this is a situation in dancing. If the dance partner the man is leading and she has no clue where he's going, she has to really be focused and attentive to every nuance of his body movement so that she can respond correctly to his lead. Uh, that's the least positive uh, position. Uh, she, she has to develop incredible amounts of flexibility. I think a woman has to be much more flexible than a man in a, in a marriage because she doesn't know where he's going and what the direction uh, what the direction is. So she has to be much more much more flexible. But that is solved by communication if the man is, is leading appropriately. Thirteen, the woman must continue to follow the man as best she can, no matter how faulty his leadership. If you are a couple and you're dancing and you get out on the dance floor and you're going through a dance... I've, and, and I've seen this many times where the guy's not a great leader and she's out there having to respond to all kinds of things. He may, not, he may not be a good dancer at all, and she has to figure out how to do her best to make it work uh, without just causing a scene out on the dance floor. And the same kind of thing can happen in the home. The man can be a failure in his leadership. What's difficult if you get uncertain leads from a husband, and I translate that analogously to if you're married to a, a anybody, if you're a man married to a woman, woman married to a man, and that person goes through a time of carnality, 
where they are really struggling with who knows what is going on in their life, then that is going to put pressure on the whole relationship. And this kind of a situation can last anywhere from six hours to six months to six years. And that's why it calls for patience. I've seen this happen in, in marriages where you see one person or the other go into some sort of spiritual tailspin and they just don't care about the word anymore or the Lord or they try to keep it up or they just go into full-blown open rebellion and it takes time for that person to recover and it takes time for the Lord to work in that person's life. And if we get impatient and say, well, you know, they haven't recovered in the last six hours, I'm out of here, then that is not the biblical or Christian response. If God treated you like that every time you got into sin or carnality for a lengthy period of time, then then you'd be, we'd be Arminians and we'd all be losing our salvation in a, just a short time. But we have to have that extended patience. I I'm not saying this is true in every case. Every case is different. Uh, every situation and circumstance is different. And I don't know all of the circumstances, but uh, years ago uh, there was a, uh, uh, a man in a local church that wasn't where I was pastoring, but it was very close by, and I knew several people over there. And I was really surprised because I found, came to find out that his wife had left him eight years before, and he refused to divorce her. Uh, five years after I left that church, she returned. And to this day, they have a tremendous marriage. That can happen. But, you know, I just think about him, what great patience he had to sit and wait and to let her work through whatever it was that she needed to work through. And not too many men would have that kind of a patience and I'm not sure if that's right or wrong. I know that in that circumstance, there were many people who uh, advised him that uh, he should divorce her, that he should move on with his life. And he said, no, I'm not. I'm going to wait, and I know that the Lord will bring her back. It may be 15 or 20 years, but the Lord will bring her back. So grace has to be a vital a feature uh, on both the husband and the wife's part as they are facing the difficulties in life. And then another part, because we're looking at this in this, this particular chapter with, with talking about the possibility in First Peter that the husband is not even a believer. I think that's the context, that he's not a believer. And in marriage, we have to recognize that the woman's testimony as a believer is not dependent on what her husband does. Her Each one of us, if our testimonies are dependent upon any other person, then we haven't understood the concept yet. Because there are always people around us who are going to be challenges to us. The believer's testimony is to stand firm and walk with the Lord no matter what those external circumstances are. We can think of the ultimate example that Peter uses, which is the Lord Jesus Christ, who is surrounded by obstacles and hostility and resentment and people who want to kill him and who eventually did. But he never sinned. His spiritual life was perfect because he refused to yield to those temptations. And so uh, no matter what your spouse does, you can still be faithful in following the Lord and applying those biblical principles in that relationship. 14. Trouble usually starts in a marriage between two believers when they quit thinking, especially quit applying doctrine, and start just yielding to their emotion. And there's no longer any mental discipline focusing on the task at hand. That's what happens in dancing. When people just start emoting to the music and they quit thinking about what they're doing or the movement, then they start making mistakes. And that happens uh, in marriage as well. 
Uh, what happens in marriage is one person may take the other person for granted. Uh, one person may start reacting emotionally to little things that the other person is doing. And before long, you have problems. Little things that could have been dealt with uh, early on are now big issues and have created a host of, of resentment. Uh, things don't just, uh, you don't just recover magically. There has to be a time to put principles of Scripture into practice and in order to apply them in order to get out of those particular uh, situations. Fifteenth uh, point is that success ultimately is based on consistency and practice. Practice, practice, not just practice, but perfect practice. Over and over again, we have to practice personally on our own ability to apply the spiritual skills to each and every every area of life. Along the way, we're going to make a lot of mistakes. And every spouse has to treat the other one in grace because they're going to make a lot of mistakes in their spiritual life. And they're going to fail in a lot of ways. And they're going to fail in ways that hurt you. And you're going to fail in ways that hurt the other person. But God's grace and forgiveness allow us to recover and to keep working and moving forward. As long as the goal is kept in place of glorifying God through a marriage that's based upon the Word of God, then anything can be overcome because God's grace is greater than any sin or problem that man man creates, and we know that from the cross. We always have to remember to keep working on the basics in the spiritual life in order to uh, move forward in the marriage. And then last but not least, as the two people work together and grow together in the early stages of a relationship, then they'll develop a mutual respect and admiration for each other. Confidence will increase and they will learn to trust each other more fully in that relationship. And this may take 5, 10, or 15 years before all of this really comes together. And unfortunately, we see so many marriages that fall apart during that, that time. We also can think of marriages that go 25, 30 years, and then there's a divorce. But usually that's because they've been uh, harboring the same resentments and wanting to get out of the marriage since those first five or, five or six years. So what does the Scripture say about this? Taking that analogy and going back and looking at Scripture, I want to look at Ephesians chapter 5 as we close out. Turn to Ephesians chapter 5, which I think is great background for understanding what Peter is, Peter is saying. In Ephesians chapter 5, uh, verse 21, Paul says, Submitting to one another in the fear of God. Now, if we start with the end of that verse, we recognize that fear of the Lord, as we go back to the Psalms and Proverbs and wisdom literature, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is submission to God's authority. It is recognizing that God's in control. So if we're starting off understanding that we are under God's authority, then part of that is to submit to one another. Now, how does that look? That doesn't mean we just go around saying, I'm going to do what you want me to do, and you do what I want to do. It's not that. It's that we work together as a team. Uh, this is what happens. We, we cooperate together in order to achieve that common goal, and we communicate and we listen to each other. But there's still somebody who's the leader and somebody who's the follower, the responder. God designed men to be leaders and women to be, to be responders. So this is why both, both uh, uh, Paul and Peter start with the wives. They're the responders. Submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. We see how again and again what's happening in that relationship in the home is tied back to the relation, the authority relationship uh, to the Lord Jesus Christ. And it always connects. There's never a breakdown between the two. 
And then we're told that the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. It is the church that is the body of Christ with Christ at the head, Jesus as our authority, that is the paradigm, that's the model for the authority relationship within the home. When Jesus Christ tells us to do something, we don't say, I want to talk about that. I think I have a better idea. That's not how the the church, the body of Christ, works. Uh, Christ is the head of the church. He is in authority. See, the, one of the things that, that happens here is you get in from the feminist camp. They say that headship means source, like the head of a river. The head of the Nile is the source of the Nile. Back in the 1980s, uh, my friend uh, Wayne House, who is a uh, professor, and I think he's still the academic dean, uh, perhaps at uh, uh, Faith Seminary, but back before he came to Dallas Seminary to be a professor, uh, Wayne had written a book called The Role of Women in, the Ch- in Ministry. It's still one of the best books on the topic that's out there. And Wayne um, Wayne uh, was really feisty when he was younger. He's still a little bit feisty, but all of us mellow a little bit with age. And uh, Wayne had also had a degree as a lawyer, so he loved to debate. And he was debating one of the foremost um, evangelical feminists uh, at a Presbyterian school in Washington State. And so he's on the platform with her, and she is making her points. And she makes her point that that this word in the Greek means he, means source. It doesn't mean uh, authority whatsoever. That's not the point. So when Wayne came, got up in his rebuttal, he reached into his briefcase, this was just in the early days of Bible study and computers, and pulled out a ream of paper, dot matrix on, the, remember the old rollers, everything would roll through, on the, and, and that's what he had, and he just started fanning it out and said, I've printed out in the Greek every use in classical and koine group of kephale, the Greek word for headship. Would you please point out to me Wayne also had a degree in patristics in Greek. He said, would you please point out to me any place where kephalate is ever used to refer to source? That was it. He wins the debate. It never refers to source. Kephalates never use a source. It refers to authority. And the pattern in verse 24 is just as the church is subject to Christ, so wives be to their husbands in everything. It is a pattern. Now that doesn't mean that uh, when the husband says something to do something wrong that you should do that. Those are the exceptions that are legitimate in Scripture. And then when we, when we skip down uh, into verse uh, 25 in an extended analogy, Paul addresses the husbands. He said, husbands, you're to love your wives as Christ loved the church. Christ isn't an abuser. Christ isn't telling his wife, the church, to do things that are wrong or to he is not lording his authority over the church as a tyrant. Uh, Husbands are to love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. This is the role of husbands. They are to have this kind of a loving relationship with their with their wife. And so when we skip down to verse 28, we read, So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does. So the husband is to nourish and cherish his wife. He is to be the spiritual leader in the home. And then when we get down to verse 32, we read, This is a great mystery. That is, all that he has said about the relationship between men and women, this is a mystery, it's a previously unrevealed truth, That and, and Paul says, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. How husbands and wives relate together is intimately uh, tied to how the Christ leads the church. So when I hear people say, well, women really don't need, that, that's just 
old school. I hate that term. That's just old-fashioned. We're, we're modern now. Wives don't need to be submissive to their husbands. Well, wait a minute. Is the church no longer submissive to Christ? Now, there are churches that aren't submissive to Christ, but the body of Christ is submissive, will always be submissive to Christ as her Lord. So that's the pattern. That's the ultimate heavenly paradigm. And then in verse 33, Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So just like in dancing, there are roles, there are uh, ways that are defined for men and women to relate to each other, but not in a way that limits the other one, but in a way that brings them together and moves them into new directions in obeying the Lord so that together they can create a, a marriage that glorifies God. With our heads bowed and eyes closed, Father, thank you for this opportunity to study through these things. We pray that those who listen, especially those who are struggling in marriage uh, problems or relationship problems, that you will help them to understand uh, these principles, that uh, how important it is in terms of how we relate to one another in the marriage, because that's the foundation for the family, and it will impact not only the children, but the next generation that comes from, from them in terms of the grandchildren and on. And Father, as Christians, it is incumbent upon us to understand this relationship of Christ and the church so that we can then apply that to our own marriages. And we pray that we can be strong in this area of marriage and in this church and in this congregation, that we may be an effective witness to your grace and to your love. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.